Hi, I'm Corey Chonsky, and welcome to my podcast, One House at a Time. As a former Naval officer, I'm proud and feel lucky that I was mentored to think about my post-military career and invest in real estate. That decision has helped me to create a level of security and wealth I didn't realize was possible. My mission is to help both those in and out of the military do the same. Each week, I will coach those in need around how to build wealth, as well as to interview some of the most successful folks and how they built their own financial freedom. Welcome to One House at a Time. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of One House at a Time. Uh, I have a great guest, someone that is uh, pretty, he's, he has a lot of experience in the real estate market, has a lot of experience you know, across the board and in the industry. Uh, has his own podcast, and uh, I'm excited to have him on the show, Paul Thompson. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks for having me, Corey. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. Um, I'm, you know, our listeners are really folks that are trying to get their start in real estate. So, folks that kind of took the path that I did, where I started with a single family house, and you know, slowly, slowly worked my way up through building that portfolio into small, you know, multifamily type stuff. Uh, can mm-hmm. you give your background for our, our listeners to kind of understand your path through uh, building your real estate portfolio? Sure, a pretty similar story, I think. I was a, I was in the corporate world, kind of was losing um, belief in that strategy as a way to provide for my family and have the financial freedom that I was wanting to build, and I you know, stumbled on uh, the idea of buying uh, one house at a time. And after considering several options of maybe building some sort of business myself, buying a franchise, creating an insurance agency, something, I couldn't help but feel like I might be maybe buying myself a job with those particular strategies. I thought, what else could I do? I was like, well, let me try real estate. I'll just do a proof of concept. Let me buy a house and see if it works. And I bought a house here in Little Rock, Arkansas, where I live, which is a fairly low cost of living. This was in the year 2015, so it's a little different market than now. And I bought a house for like 30 grand and put 10 grand of rehab into it and then uh, basically rented it out, refied it, got my money back out and, re- and rented it for like 650 bucks a month. So not exactly going to change your life kind of a project, but it was a, a viable proof of concept. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's kind of one of the biggest obstacles to a lot of investors is, you know, getting into that first deal and it could be a mm-hmm. variety of things of, you know, you know, analysis, you know, paralysis by analysis or not feeling mm-hmm. comfortable in what you're doing. But it's it's one of those things that, you know, it's at, you know, that's the important part is getting into something and, you know, trying to figure stuff out. Right. Totally great. Uh, So from there, so you you got your first property in 2015 and then, Mm -hmm. you know, you continue. What what about that first property made you think, hey, you know what, this is this is working for me. I want to go try to get my second property. (laughs) It was a big a moment for me when I got my first rental check. So I did the work to buy a property, get it rented, get it refied, and I had it uh, a check coming in that was more than my expenses. Now, certainly this is not a guaranteed uh, you know, coverage. Like there's sometimes people, you know, things go vacant and there are expenses, but I saw it. It's like, I can see myself doing this more. And to the to the extent that I did that something like 
20 or 30 more times over the next two or three years. So for a while there, I was averaging buying a rental property about once a month and doing the rehab, getting it renovated, uh, ready for a tenant, leased up and refied into long-term debt. And most of the time I was not leaving any money in the deal. And if I was leaving money on the deal, it was a very, it was just a few thousand dollars. So I was able to take, you know, a seed capital of, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 and buy 20 properties with that money by just recycling it through the Burr method. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what would you kind of classify the properties that were you investing? Were they, you know, B, C type properties? What, you know, did that, is that what you built your criteria around in the beginning or were you just kind of identifying properties and, you know, chasing down what was available? Yeah, at first I was looking for cash flow. So when I was looking at these properties and that were in my backyard, uh, could I make a hundred or two hundred dollars of net net cash flow after all expenses were paid in a pro forma basis? And so that was uh, my goal. And in most cases, those are you know B minus uh, C, perhaps even Class D properties. And that I knew that probably wasn't where I was going to land and spend all of my time and all of my career is in the lower income properties. But the lower income properties, when managed appropriately, have cash flow, have a lot more cash flow than you can find in a, a B plus, A minus, certainly class A, truly A, class A properties, hard to find cash flow there. And in my neighborhood, uh, I was able to have a pretty good stock of class B and C properties to choose from. And so I would be careful and I'm trying to find you know a good deal and a property that I actually wouldn't be afraid to go to. But when I found those, I was able to you know buy quite a few pretty quickly. And in, in the scheme of things, um, I was able to build a portfolio that paid my living expenses, you know, within two or three years. Um, so as you were starting into, you know, buying your first or second property, what was there any like big surprises that you weren't anticipating that, you know, you turned into, you know, built into your process down the road? Yeah. When I first started buying rental properties, a huge surprise that I came across is realizing that tenants are fantastic negotiators and it turns out I'm not that good at it. So I had to uh, kind of up my game and figure out how to deal with tenants and deal with the oftentimes very legitimate uh, stories of heartache that they go through when you're living at such low income, you just live on such a, a narrow margin. Uh, you you live close to your money and they can't pay if they don't have money. And so it's one of the remediations people do for that is they get into section eight housing because the government's paying for most, if not all of, or all, if not most of, of, of that rental payment. But yeah, it's definitely a, a learning curve when you're managing lower income properties that there, there is a, a much higher level of overhead and management there than you probably first realize. Did you, do you self-manage? I don't anymore. I wanted to manage myself to figure out what it took. And I realized very quickly that managing properties myself was not my superpower, and I needed to delegate that off to somebody who was better at it than me as quickly as I could. Yeah, I mean, I it's one of those things that, from my perspective, like one of the first team team members that you can bring on board is a property manager, and mm. they can really help you, you know, find those other team members. Now you got to do a really good job of vetting them, but mm-hmm. you know, you find the right team you find the right pro- you know, property manager, they're gonna introduce you to so many other people that can help your portfolio. 
And so to me, that was, I mean, I was in the Navy, so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't necessarily always around to manage it myself. Sure. Anyway, you, you had to have management. I had to have management. <laughs> yeah, correct. Yeah. But uh, yeah. so in the beginning when you were managing it and evaluating these properties, were you taking into account like the property management fee, even though you weren't? Yes. Yeah. So great question. So when you're looking at a rental property and you're underwriting it and you're debating on whether or not you're going to manage it yourself or you're going to delegate it to a property manager, you still underwrite it with a property management fee built into it because you want to give yourself the flexibility and the option to outsource it if you wish. I think it would be a short-sighted to underwrite based on and buy a deal based on you managing it because you're basically signing up for a job that you're agreeing to not pay yourself for. Yeah, you can get in a lot of trouble if you go and you, the only way it cash flows is if you're self-managing it. It's like you said, then yeah. you're trapped in a job. Yeah, which is the, kind of the whole point for me was to get myself out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, now, as you kind of manage your portfolio, what do you see your time management? How much are you involved with your portfolio on a, on a weekly basis? Oh, that's a good question. So now that I've built my portfolio and I have uh, about 40 properties in central Arkansas that I uh, own as rental properties, three of those units are what I call midterm rentals. How much time am I spending on that portfolio per month? Somewhere between three and five hours a month, I would say. And most of that is bookkeeping so that when I file taxes, it'll be taken care of. And so I don't have to like re-figure out what all these expenses were for. So I meet with my bookkeeper for about an hour once a week and go over all the expenses that come through and make sure that they're being booked appropriately. And there's a fair amount of managing, you know, like proving that your insurance is still in place, that sort of thing, and making sure that your property taxes are paid. So there are uh, periodic tasks that you need to do, like making sure your, your taxes are filed, that you probably can't ever 100% outsource unless you really had a major company and you had like a chief financial officer or something. Uh, so at this point, three to five hours a, a month is what I'm spending on a portfolio that effectively pays for my, my, my lifestyle. Nice. Are, are you continuing to look in the same areas or is your portfolio expanded? Is that giving you time to kind of identify new locations for buying? Right. Yeah, so I have kind of moved on from single family at this point. Uh, single family is still the base of my the foundation of my living expenses, but I I don't get too excited about buying a new rental property anymore mm -hmm. uh, because I've done that a lot and it's not that much more work to buy a you know 27 unit apartment complex than it is to buy a, another single family property. It's not 27 times harder. It's probably a little bit harder than buying a single family property, but not that much more. And I'm going to have a property management anyway, so I basically have scaled up and kind of gone up the ladder in managing my, a portfolio that is now uh, where I'm looking to uh, look. I'm looking to buy at scale mm -hmm. in a way that I wouldn't before. And you almost always, maybe not 27, but anything above 30, I'm probably going to need a partner on that. I'm not going to be able to take it down by myself. Yeah. So. You know, the, that's one of the things that I noticed uh, myself having started with single family and, and, and also purchasing apartment complexes is mm -hmm. that there there is a point where it's, you know, it, to me, like thinking of the starting out at buying a hundred unit apartment complex was very daunting. Yeah. And that was even after I had experience. Like I, I can't imagine someone starting out today 
as opposed to just skipping all over that stuff and going straight to, oh, I'm gonna just go buy this 100 unit apartment complex. Unless you have a well-experienced partner. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that like, even, you know, even having like say a 50 unit moving to a 100 unit, there are definitely some nuances. I think the bigger challenge is on the lending side and the lenders typically, they have, have a lot more, yeah. you know, requirements, restrictions. You know, yeah. there's a lot more legal involved. And then as part of that, you, you know, you always want to do your due diligence, but due diligence is a is a bigger beast uh, once you kind of start to transition Going to commercial bigger properties. I agree. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny that you, you mentioned that, uh, Corey, because um, that's a problem that I see in the marketplace right now. It's like it's hard to find deals right now. And so I'm actually working on a, a program that I'm, I'm, I'm basically, I call it the partner project, and we are actively looking for opportunities to, to partner together so that we can use the time, network, skills, experience, deal flow that one person has that matches up with uh, corresponding skill sets that kind of interleave together. Because if, if you don't have the cash, you need to go and find somebody who either has the cash or credit. Or, but some people that have cash and credit don't have the time or experience to go and operate these projects. So sometimes, and often, many times, you do a syndication and you kind of combine resources and you find this kind of hand and glove fit so that you can, uh, you're, you're better than some of your parts when you combine your interests the right way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, uh, I mean, if you find a good deal, you want to share that with people. I mean, you know, it's better to have a small part of, you know, a million, two million dollar deal than mm -hmm. having all of a hundred thousand dollar deal. But or a zero percent of a of a three million dollar deal, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You yeah, you can't take it down by yourself. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, on on the same point, and I think the especially with a lot of listeners that are going to be listening to this episode, like you know, they're they have really neither of those. You know, they don't have the you know million dollars to put towards being in a syndication or mm -hmm. they don't really have the experience to say, hey, look at my track record. You know, they, they're looking to build that track record. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of one of those things that, you know, a lot of the gurus out there, they, they're trying to have people come in and just like, you can go be an operator at this large apartment complex. And it's just like, you can't, it, that's, you're, you're gonna run into problems, you're not gonna know how to deal with them. And the only way you can build up to it from either go win the lottery or you know get some sort of real estate operating experience on your own mm -hmm. or um use something that you do have access to yes. to become a small um, member or a co-gp or a small member of of a group where you're providing value where uh, you'd be surprised that uh, your network and your um, life experience does have value to somebody uh, because um, let's say it's a you know fake example, uh, three million dollar apartment pr project, and you're working with somebody who's done that before, but they need help uh, managing investor relations, for example. They, they need somebody to host the webinars and uh, do do some underwriting and talk about the, the project. That's a legitimate thing to offer to somebody. Absolutely. In fact, I've had people come to me and say, like, hey, I, I hear you're, you, you know how to do that. We have some RV parks. Would you want in on our deal to help manage the investor relations? I mean, that's, that, those kind of opportunities do exist if you've developed those skills. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we've taken in smaller folks who have, you know, access to certain high net worth individuals. 
Right. Obviously, you can't just come in as a capital raiser. I mean, there's other aspects that you can come in, but it helps you kind of right. work on some of those deal, you know, those skills that you haven't developed. Like we've definitely- yeah, gain some experience, right? You take a little shard of ex- relevance that you have and say, well, I just want a small piece, but let me help. And then, then you can say, okay, now I've done a deal. I've been a part of this RV park. And, you know, I, I may have only been a 2% GP share, but I, I mean, but I, I, I host the webinars. <laughs> yeah. You know, then you're you're sitting in on the asset management meetings and you're getting right. experience there. Um, you probably need to do a couple of those, I would say, before you really are in a position to kind of take the reins. Because to I be the primary, you're not going to be a KP after doing two of those. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, we, we've had some folks that have come in on some of our larger deals that, you know, in that same situation. Um, and even as we progress through the business plan and, you know, we, you know, start just on stabilized operations. I mean, I, I don't know if necessarily just based on that one deal, they would have been, um, oh, I'm going to go out and do this all on my own now. But, right. And, right. you know, it's it's building steps, right? And so they, yeah. you know, they got that first step as they go and do other deals on top of it. You know, yeah, you're adding to your resume, more right? More of it, yeah. Yeah. So now that you, you know, you're looking to transition to multifamily or just larger deals in general, um, mm-hmm. what made you want to take that step? Good question. So when you have single family experience and, you know, you're doing all right with it and you don't really need to go in scale, why would you go in scale? What's what's the interest there? Well, I got bored with doing single family. I, I just it was just like not interesting to me at all. Like, mm-hmm. like buying another and selling another single family property. Just I mean, I'm you know, I'm, I'm in my mid 40s. I'm not ready to retire in the sense that I don't have any responsibilities anymore. I, I've got things I want to do. Um, and. I want to own assets and I want to learn the skills it takes to own and manage assets because I plan to live at least double my, my, uh, life, my frame. I may not get there, but I'm at least plan for it. So I want to be able to, um, you know, like a, like a Warren Buffett type, like work into your nineties because you enjoy what you're doing. And I really enjoy searching out deals, raising capital and building, uh, kind of like lifelong friendships with the friends that I end up doing business with. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that once you kind of get into real estate, the idea of being able to kind of just talk about it all the time become, it's almost an addiction, if you will, um, talking (laughs) talking properties. And that was kind of one of the things that led me into jumping to partnerships and syndications was, you know, like you said, burring is a really helpful strategy. You know, you, you want to make sure you do it without over leveraging, but yeah, um, there's there, you're going to get to a point where more than likely a lot of your capital that you're working with gets trapped in a deal, even if you, you get back most of it. And I kind of got to a point where a lot of my capital became trapped and I realized the bigger deals that I wanted to go get, I needed additional partners. And so that led me right. to like, okay, I'm going to go take on partners and I'm going to, you know, do syndications. And that allowed me to continue to grow my portfolio. And, you know, I started with small syndications and kind of worked my way up from there. And so, yeah, it's one of those things that that's kind of was my driving factor to to kind of scale beyond what I was, you know, currently doing. Um, So you've done work or you've built your portfolio in, in central Arkansas. Do you plan on, you know, scaling outside of the state or you are you a big fan of Arkansas and they're going to stay there? 
No, I mean, I'm probably going to live here for a long time, but um, it's not a very big real estate market. So the most of the commercial projects I'm doing are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Okay. And that's where I, um, I, I just, I've done enough study to figure out that uh, Dallas is a, just the Texas market in general, but specifically Dallas, is just a huge growing market with tons of upside. Lots of people are moving there. There's a huge shortage in housing, and I want to provide housing and um, you know provide a good service to the people that will be living there while providing for my family. And so I just feel I'm very bullish on the Dallas-Fort Worth market. And in addition to that, I, I run a, a fund that we issue loans to borrowers that are flipping land and we do that from all over the, the, the country so we're not limited to just the uh, dallas or arkansas markets for that but that's where a lot of our uh, borrowers are because that's where our network is and i've kind of been going on the tear lately uh, on a, a capital raising mode because now i'm a fund manager so um, i don't just raise capital now for a project as it comes up i raise capital for a fund that is constantly issuing loans that's interesting. So, how you know, as a fund manager, we're basically raising capital all the time. How yep. how is that process been going? Because I know a lot of operators from you know the end of last year through this year have experienced a lot of difficulty in raising capital. Are you running into yeah. those same hurdles, or are, have you found a way to kind of get through those? So yes, and yes. So uh, in the current market there are there's a lot of cash that's sitting on the sidelines because they're just not quite sure what's happening with the the market and while they're doing so they're you know losing to inflation and they're not you know getting the potential of compound uh, interest and so we specifically designed our fund to be a passive income fund for accredited investors that works perfectly for an IRA or a solo 401k type investment. Mm -hmm. And so that's the conversations we tend to be having is with people who um, have cash that they really need to deploy and they, they can't do anything else with it but deploy it. And and so we create a, a an easy passive income fund where they're not tied up for a long time. So it's only a one-year commitment and we have an offer at 12% PREF. So in this market cycle, that's a pretty compelling offer for somebody who is in a good financial position, they're accredited, they have some extra cash, but they don't really have the time or experience to be an operator themselves. So this is a, 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 a intentionally designed to solve that problem. So are you and you're using that fund to then go do the flipping of the land? Yeah, we issue loans to people who flip lands, and we do like transactional. So we do, so we, our loans are all six months or less. So we're intentionally doing very short term asset based loans. Nice. Uh, that that's definitely one of the ways to kind of work work your way around this. Obviously, raising for real estate has been challenging just because obviously the rate market, um, you're hearing yep. those stories of, of groups like in Houston, there was one group in particular that had over like $300 million foreclosed on yeah. uh, by their yep. lender and lots of struggles that were going on there. Uh, mm -hmm. I know there's another group, much larger group that, you know, they've put out a warning to all their investors, expect capital calls. And really? so, I mean, that is obviously causing a lot of concern amongst investors, whether they're in current deals or looking to get into deals. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and there's a lot of uh, operators out there raising money, uh, especially syndicators for multifamily. That, I mean, they're, they are a dime a dozen. There's a ton of them out there. 
And a lot of them are having trouble finding deals right now. So there's more capital uh, available for available deals right now. And and then it's kind of like, what's the uncertainty of these of, of the dynamic with the current rates? And so I basically just intentionally sidestepped that entire thing. And it's like, I, I still will be an operator when I find a good deal. Yeah. We're, we're, we're doing ground up construction. Uh, but we're looking for, like from a fund perspective, I'm looking for how to keep liquidity movement and and basically make yield while everybody's kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs thinking about these bigger projects. Like our projects are $100,000 or less typically. So we're doing very small, like almost like micro loans at, at a small scale. Well, small loans that so your money is spread out over a variety of projects. You mentioned a very interesting word that I imagine a lot of the invest or the, you know, the listeners on this show uh, may not understand or don't hear okay. quite often and that's yield could you talk about that a little bit yeah so uh, what is your return and uh, what is the yield over the cost of money or what is the yield over uh, your your the fundamental uh, loss of inflation that you're having so it looks like the the, the fed has done a, a reasonable job um, pulling uh, inflation down from a year ago for sure uh, we're, 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 if you believe the public numbers anyway, we're close to 3% inflation. And I suspect that we'll get close to 2% by the end of the, the year. So uh, inflation is not as bad as it was, but inflation is still going on. And so you're still losing to inflation every year if, you're, if your uh, money is sitting idle. So I like to get money, you know, in, I, I don't spend time timing the market. I like to spend time in the market and let the market do its thing. And a particular market that we're in is I'm, People, I'm not hoping people are going to pay me uh, a promissory note. They have an obligation to pay me the, the yield on the promissory note, right? So I'm not hoping that somebody's going to going to do a good job on doing a project. They they are, I mean, I'm, I'm a debt instrument to them. So I'm not in the equities market when I'm lending money. And so that's just a, a, a way to, to re- remove uh, more risk from the table than buying into the equities. And really, we're getting a pretty similar return with debt now than a lot of people are getting with, with equity. Yeah, and that's a yield is something that allows you to kind of evaluate different investment strategy, similar to like net operating income on a real estate perspective that allows you to kind of compare one, you know, investment property to another, even if there's a lot of, you know, there's not that many similarities, but yield allows mm-hmm. you to do that across investment strategies which is why it's a very yeah. important thing to understand it's why we use cap rates when we talk about like what or you know what is a particular uh, project how is it operating well it's 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 cap rate is you know four six eight whatever percent that's what it's getting from you it's another way of expressing NOI right so all right sounds like you you're kind of waiting out the market are you still evaluating deals even though you know there's not oh, really yeah. a whole lot out there yeah, there's less, but there's you know there's always a deal going on yeah. somewhere somehow. Just gotta find and, it, right? Right. So you may have to you know dig a little harder, and you may have to do use different techniques. Like just going to a bank and getting the market rate, it just doesn't work. Like when when the interest rates are seven, eight, nine, ten percent, um, and you're buying a four to six cap deal, like how how does that make sense? So it we're doesn't. doing things like we're. <laughs> I mean, I just, it's like, it doesn't pencil out, does it? So 
what we're doing is we're, do, we're looking at opportunities where we can uh, buy something at a discount so we can buy raw land at much cheaper than what it's worth for development. Or we, we're talking to sellers and we're negotiating seller financing. And a lot of times we're not even taking payments or we're not required to take payments for like a year or two. And then we pick up on interest only payments or an advertising schedule or whatever. We, we negotiate at rates that are far below what's available in the marketplace. So it's higher than what they can get from a CD, but lower than what, what we can get in the marketplace. And a lot of times we're even looking at uh, assuming existing debt and then paying a, a, a premium for the, you know, the insurance that makes sure that our rate can't go up to a certain level. So we'll pay the extra rate that it costs for that insurance so that we have a cap on what the, the interest rate can go to when it recasts. Recaps. Save, saving a lot of deals right now. Yeah, rate cap insurance. Yep, um, we def, we have that on a couple of our deals. So it's uh, otherwise we would have been crushed on those. I mean, we started at you know in the threes and fours on those deals, and yeah. we'd be paying like nine percent if it wasn't for our rate cap. Absolutely. So yeah, absolutely. But you do bring up a, a good point and something that all of the real estate agents out there have to ask probably every time they field a, a phone call about a deal, and it's like. Do you do seller financing or can I assume that loan? Bingo. And that kind of conversation was hard to have two or three years ago. Prior to the pandemic in, in the late teen, uh, 2015s and, and later, like that kind of conversation just did not go very far easily yeah. unless you were talking directly to the seller. When interest, when interest was less than 3%, it's just it's a hard conversation to have. It's a completely different world now. Yeah, and why would you want to do that? Because more than likely, they had a higher interest rate than what was out there. And if you did right. do owner financing, that means that you're bringing much more money to the deal because you know the LTV had changed uh, on that deal from when they you know put that debt in place. And so, right. in those instances, it didn't necessarily make sense. And so that's kind of the battle that we're seeing in the market right now is you know whether seller financing is involved or not, you know probably values in a lot of parts of the country are either stagnant or gone down a little bit. And there's that mindset that's kind of stuck from the seller's perspective of, hey, this they is what my property was valued at before. Yeah. This is what yeah. I want. And yeah. there's like, well, no way can I come into this deal and you know not lose my shirt under that current condition in the rate market. Yep. And so it's it's interesting um i think really that's why a lot of people are targeting people that have owned the property much longer and in, in order to see if they can convince them to recognize the current value in the market versus what it mm -hmm. was even a year ago or two years just ago. a couple of years ago yeah exactly so but i even struggle with that there's a property here local to me in uh, mm -hmm. in virginia that i've been going after for some months now but he put it on the guy put it on the market even in you know 2020 and 2021 where the market was crazy at the valuation he thought he deserved and then it sell and so now that the market has shifted he still thinks it's worth what people weren't gonna Same. buy when they were buying everything yeah yeah i just talked to a guy on a, a place here locally in little rock which i don't typically look for but there's a you know a 30 unit apartment complex that just came available for sale and they're trying to sell this thing at a four cap and it's like they <laughs> I mean, I know you've stabilized it, you've done some improvements, but the market's not going to sustain a four cap right now. It just does, yeah. does not work. Yeah, the only just, reason that would make sense is if you just had stupid cash and you just need a place to put your money. Yep, and that's obviously not a valid exit strategy. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, so it's one of those things where it's how, 
So, I mean, I even do the same thing when I try to sell something, I want to maximize the market, but sure. I'm in a position where if I can't right now and all I get is super low ball offers, I'm going to take wait off out. the market and I'll wait till I can yeah. get what I think is worth. Yeah. Which is probably what this guy would do. Yeah, probably. You know, it's, it's what I want to do as a seller, but then that's what I complain about when I'm a buyer, you know? Yeah. It depends on what seat you're in, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. You're just like, just pay me my money or, you know, yeah. just accept the, the new valuation. Mm -hmm. All righty. So uh, as we kind of get towards the end of the show, I like to ask the same question. Uh, where do you see yourself in a year from now? A year from now, let's see, I will have kids going into uh, becoming juniors in eighth grade, which is hard to get my head around. So a year from now, um, we will have just come back from a summer vacation because we like our kids are young and uh, are young enough that they're still at, 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 in the house and they're going to be leaving soon. So we try and spend every second we can with them. So that's my first priority when they're not in school. And then, and from the business front, I will have probably closed out my, my, my raise for my fund and I will be contemplating what to do to scale the, either that same fund or start another fund. That's what I anticipate within, within a year from now. So with your, your fund that people exit in a year, where do you, do you close that fund out in a year and then start a new one? Or is that kind of a good question process? So for my close, so I have a, uh, what they call a close ended fund, meaning I have a $10 million raise. And when I get to 10 million, I, I close it out and I don't accept new, new, um, uh, borrowers. But if a borrower decides that after a year's time that they've been invested, that it, they want to do something else with their cash or they want to retire or whatever, then I can take on new investors, but I can't go above the number that I close until I decide to open again. You can reopen a, a closed loan and, you know, you know, go to $25 million or something like that. So that would be part of the consideration. Okay. How about five years from now? Five years from now, my daughter will be close to graduating, um, uh, high school and will be looking for, uh, colleges. And so uh, my wife and I will be uh, on the verge of empty nesters and we will probably be very close to having our operation such that we are business owners and not business operators. So that's kind of the, the path that we're on and we'll have um, squeezed every moment we could have with our kids when they were um, at home, but not in school. And then they'll be kind of launched, you know, so, you know, air, fingers crossed, successfully launched into the world. And uh, I'll have a little bit different out outlook on life as far as what I spend my time doing. I think my wife and I would probably do a lot more travel on our own uh, because uh, I guess we're in a situation where, where we could. And I like to do uh, events. And so I'm, I'm hosting events now. And I suspect I'll be hosting more events and kind of basically throwing parties uh, because I can. Thanks. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you, uh, you know, mm -hmm. if they have questions or follow-ups or, you know, they just want to follow you on your journey? Sure. If they want to talk shop or follow me on what I'm doing, you can find me at my website, pauldavidthompson.com. You can drop that in the show notes. I'll send you the link, but it's the spell debate about the way you'd spell those three names, pauldavidthompson.com. And I'm the same on most socials. I have a newsletter and I have a podcast that you guys can check out. That's called uh, The Wake Up Call. All right. Once again, I thank you uh, for coming on the show and sharing a lot of knowledge in terms of different aspects of real estate and what you're currently doing. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Paul.